Welcome to the AWP podcast series. This event was recorded at the 2015 AWP conference in Minneapolis. The recording features Alexander Chi, Janine Capo Crusette, Danielle Evans, Matt Johnson, and Christine Lee. You will now hear Christine Lee provide introductions. Good morning, everybody. Thanks for coming on the last day of AWP. Holler to all the people who were able to get up on the last day. I'm Christine Lee. Welcome to the panel on striving for balance between language and prejudice in teaching writing. So we're going to discuss a lot of, you know, stuff around sexist, homophobic, and racist work in the classroom and how we would manage it as instructors and how we can dismantle pejorative workshop language that, you know, uh, that promotes marginalization while making sure that we keep dialogue open. I'm Christine Lee, and I'm proud of... um, I'm proud of, like, this panel. Um, I assembled a very small group of engaging and charismatic writers whom you all may have met on Twitter. So I want to introduce each of the panelists. To my right, first to my right, is uh, Alex Chi, who has written Edinburgh and the forthcoming Queen of the Night. He's a recipient of the White Writing Writers Award, an NEA Fellowship and MCCA Fellowship. He's taught at the Iowa Writers Workshop, Amherst College, Columbia University's MFA program, and Sarah Lawrence. To his right is Janine Capo-Cruset, and she is the author of the novel Make Your Home Among Strangers, and the story collection How to Leave Hialeah, which won the Iowa State and the John Gardner Book Prize and the Devil's Kitchen Award. And she's the winner of an O. Henry Prize and the Picador Fellowship, and she teaches at Florida State University. To my left is Matt Johnson. He's written a gazillion novels. He writes creative nonfiction and comics. He's written Pim, Drop, Hunting in Harlem, and um, the forthcoming novel Loving Day, which is out next month. Next month. He's a recipient of the United States Artists James Baldwin Fellowship, the Hurston Wright Legacy Award, a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writer Selection, and the John Dos Passos Prize for Literature. And he teaches at the University of Houston's Creative Writing Program. And to his left is Danielle Evans, who is the author of the story collection Before You Suffocate Your Own Fool Self, and she teaches at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. So, how many of you here are teachers or instructors? All right. Okay. Just want to get a, so um, I just want to get started and ask each of the panelists why did you choose to be on this panel and what is it you hope to address? All these years of AWP and I still haven't learned you never sit on the end of a panel. <laughs> um, so I mean, I think part of the reason I wanted to be on this panel is I, I think that there are situations where there isn't an easy and obvious answer, and so it would be useful for us to all talk it through. Um, I think probably for me, my sense of some of my greatest classroom failings have come around this topic, (laughs) and some of it I've learned through trial and error, Um, and I think making a space to have these kinds of conversations, to leave space for art that takes risks without those risks sort of coming at the cost of other people in your classroom um, is really important, and I, I don't know that there's a formula for it, but it's, it seems like it's, it's very much important that we explore it and acknowledge that this is a thing that's happening. Victor Laval called in sick, <laughs> so that's, that's part of it. Yeah. No, so much of our, our workshops are based on, on the dynamic of the room, right? And the students oftentimes don't realize that a successful workshop or a workshop that completely bombs often has more to do with the students than it has to do with the professors. And of course, you know, when it goes really well, you claim all the credit. And when it goes really poorly, you just kind of shrug and point at the pain the ass kid in the corner. But when, uh, when language comes up or scenes come up that are, that are problematic, uh, racist, sexist, homophobic, it can sink your entire class. In, in really kind of dramatic ways. And, like, I'm tenured, so it's like as long as I don't kill anybody, I'm basically fine. But when you're with, <laughs> dealing with professors who are also in, at a point where their evaluations really matter, 
these are the classes that can can create really ugly valuations and also can create a lot of uncomfortable feelings. And you're in a tough position because if you overstep in the in you can kind of squash the energy of the room and it can be ugly, but if you just let it go and hope nobody gets too upset about it, it, you kind of you lose the trust of the of the students. So it's a I'll, I'm I'm looking forward to talking about how I've been trying to balance it, and also hearing other strategies for trying to negotiate this. I'm remembering when I was a student myself at the I Writers Workshop in the '90s, and I had come from San Francisco and participating in ACT UP and Queer Nation, uh, direct action politics and. And I, I would go and see the assistant director of the program just about every week to talk about my complaints about the workshop because I didn't, I didn't really have any tools except to just kind of pop off in class at my classmates. And I remember at one point she said to me, I'll put the whole workshop in sensitivity training if that's what you want. And I remember thinking, is that what I want? And that actually wasn't what I wanted. I realized it would instantly make me a kind of enemy of my classmates. It was going to be the sort of thing that would pretty much instantly fail whatever I was trying to do. And so ever since that moment, I've been trying really hard to to think about how you handle this question. The difference between, you know, is the story racist or homophobic, or is it addressing racism and homophobia? Are there things that are happening within the text that are unconscious or more directly spiteful? And how do, you, how do you address that with the person in a way that gives them more access to whatever it is they're trying to write about and also makes room for everybody else? Because I realized, you know, and when I began teaching myself, that what I was up to was helping them to write about the hardest things. And that can't happen if they can't talk about it. And so the reason why I'm here basically is talk some more about figuring that out. That's what I hope for. Um, Yeah, like Alex, my experiences as a teacher are very much informed um, by my experiences as a student in an MFA program where I was the only Latina in the program and the only person of color in the program for the three years that I was there. And so I actually wrote out my answer because I've also learned that I'm a little bit of a nervous teacher. And this was the only question I knew like way in advance was coming. So um, my response is, why am I on this panel? And it's because when I've asked my colleagues and my graduate students how they address this topic in their course design and specifically on their syllabi, they usually don't have an answer because they aren't addressing it there or anywhere. They aren't tackling it head on. Instead of beginning the conversation, they're either not anticipating it. I should specify that all my colleagues where I currently teach are white. They either aren't anticipating it or hoping it won't come up. Two strategies, if you can call them that, that are not available to me as a professor of color who does not have that particular facet of privilege. When the opportunity for dialogue about prejudice in the workshop isn't built into your course design, an instructor is left only with the option of addressing inflammatory or racially charged remarks as they occur rather than taking charge of that conversation from day one by talking about the role diversity must play in any workshop happening in America today. I'm on this panel because in my experience, too many instructors are reluctant to directly acknowledge in their course design that the workshop is a place where acts of bigotry will occur and that these range from unintentional microaggressions to larger, more purposeful acts of bigotry and appropriation and that they must prepare their students for these instances by laying out in writing and via class discussion the the methods by which the class together will address and dismantle those moments when, not if, they arise. So I want to, I'm going to get back to your point. I liked your point about the difference between, or the line between racist work and work that addresses racism or all the isms. But I also want to, get this next question addressed before we move on to that, and which is um, what do each of you think the purpose of the workshop is? And then, and some of you have addressed that and how do these issues in writing play into that? Well, I think of workshop as a place, you know, in the, in the sort of, in the ideal sense, uh, a place where the student comes with their work to learn how to be more of themselves as a writer. And 
to get from the reading that they get from their classmates to get a picture of what they're doing. You know, writing is one of those arts where the more you work on something, the more invisible it becomes to you. And so the only way that you end up being able to see it is to radically change your sense of it through other people reading it, setting it aside, etc. And in workshop you get you get access to a conversation about your work that you could otherwise only imagine when people are reading you. And so these issues are, they play out because they play out in everyone's lives. They're issues we all live with. Diversity is a, is a word that I think of, whenever I hear it now, I increasingly think of diversity, a.k.a. what my life is like. It feels, it's, it increasingly feels like code for something that I see as just, I don't think of myself as having a diverse life. I think of myself as having a life. And other people who don't have that might see that as diverse, in other words. So, you know, I think of, I think of a moment I had in class about five or six years ago where a student went off on another student for anti-Semitism in her story. And she was Jewish, and all the characters were Jewish. And she was, writing, she was essentially writing about her family over the holidays. And was trying to write about internalized anti-Semitism. And I let him go on for a while, but I could see that he had entered into some kind of strange mode where he himself, who was not a Jew, uh, was prepared to really go all out in defense of what he saw as an attack on Jewish people by a Jewish writer in the classroom. And I had to shut him down. I just said, that's enough for now. And that was an awkward moment because I don't, I don't like to make those kinds of interventions when people cross that line on the one hand. But on the other hand, I feel like my responsibility as the teacher is a responsibility to all of the students, not just the one that wants to speak. And, you know, I, I got a three-page email from him later about how wrong I was. The classroom discussion moved on. He and I met privately. I met privately with the student who was being workshopped. But it's true that there wasn't a system in place in the way that you're talking about in the course design. And so I love what you had to say about that. And I think that's something that I would actually actively want to put in place going forward. You know, I think that idea of a system that gives them a sense that they'll be heard and you a sense that there's a process in place so that you're not making it up as you go along is an incredibly intelligent approach. So my very first graduate school workshop, uh, the professor said on the first day of class, if you're in a workshop where 15% of the feedback you hear is useful, you're in a really good workshop. And I think for me, the, the, the crucial part of workshop is figuring out which 15%, right? That's the filter that you're there to develop. The blank page never gets any easier, but your editorial muscle hopefully develops over time. And I think that part of what Workshop does is let you filter out what you listen to. And so the reason I think these issues are so critically important is because they get in the way of how much useful feedback you're getting and, and how much of it you can hear. I think on the one hand, there are students I've had come to me because they're, they're the only person of color in the workshop. They're the only person of their background in the workshop. And I sometimes just have to tell them, look, like you're going to get less than 15%. Like, <laughs> you're going to have to learn to filter out more. And, and there's, I wish that I could do something besides tell you that. And there are other students who need to hear more than they're hearing because their position is this sort of sense of they will not be stifled as an artist. And so sometimes some of these issues they get very defensive about because they feel like any pushback against the representations in their work is a form of censorship and not asking them to sort of think more complexly around the world. And I don't think it's always obvious. I mean, I had, the, the moment I come back to when I'm thinking about this, I had a student who very much crossed the line. There were, there were two students of color in an otherwise um, all-white workshop, and one of them just said something wildly inappropriate to the other, essentially, that she was not in touch enough with her own ethnicity, and that's why her characters, the word whitewashed, was used. So I had to shut that down and, and talk to that student after class and say, you know, you can't say that, you need to apologize to her. And we eventually got to the point where he accepted that he, he, could, he should apologize to her, but he was hurt because he felt that in a previous workshop he'd taken with me, someone else had turned in a story with a really racist first-person narrator, and we talked about the racism of the story. We openly used the word racism, but I hadn't made that student apologize to him. 
And I felt like pedagogically, like it made sense to me that I treat differently like what you say as a person to another person versus what a first-person narrator says. But emotionally, I could understand why, as the only black male student in the program reading that story, felt like that kid had said it to him in a way that I could intellectually understand that it wasn't my role in the classroom to say you could never have a character in a first-person story say something racist, but I also can't. I didn't want to completely write off that feeling as absurd, you know, and I don't know exactly what you do about that except, except foreground it, which is part of why when I start a workshop now, I, start, I try to start with a conversation about how those things come up, and it doesn't solve everything, but at least it's on the table. It's funny because um, I tell her this all the time, but the very first workshop I ever taught, she was in it as a student. <laughs> And I always think, like, if I had just quit right there, I would have had a great success rate. <laughs> but uh, the, the way I've been dealing with it, I've been teaching for almost well, about 15 years. I have a basic feeling that, that um, when I go into the classroom, in that classroom, I love all my students. Like, I love them. And I want them to do really well. Even the little shits. I want them to do really well. And I want them, while we're in the room, I want them to love each other. So just like dealing with family members, a lot of the times this comes up. And honestly, with, I notice it the most with this straight misogyny, right? Because like as a society, we've often been trained to watch out for exposing our own racism. And lately, very, very recently, people have more, been more conscious about exposing their own homophobia. So those moments to me, there are exceptions. But there's a lot of lit bros, and they come up with these with with characters, and you know, and I'm I'm saying as somebody who's certainly probably been guilty of this in the past, it definitely has. They come up with characters that are based on, you know, the the effects of living in a misogynist society, and so you see a lot of it there. And I see it with racism, and I see it with homophobia and, and transphobia, and anything else. And what I try and do is give the student an out, like in the room. If I can do that. So I had a student who handed in this piece that was like, it was just gloriously offensive. I don't mean that as a compliment to him. I just mean, like, I don't think he thought he was being edgy and he didn't realize he was just being a horrible person. And so what I had to do was be like, well, clearly this, like, be kind of dismissive. Of it. Well, clearly this is, this is a racist archetype that harkens back to immigration Asian immigration in the 1920s and you know and we don't want people to think that this story this lovely story is unknowingly having this really horrible racist character here so we should really address that probably you should take that out I know he didn't know that when he did the piece I know when he has this comic scene where somebody turns out to be trans that he's making fun of that character but I pretend like I don't just to give him an out and then I say really vicious truth stuff to, to this guy about how to do it and I kind of try and keep up that energy the whole way through and I, I'm like I'm mixed uh, black and white like I've seen the first workshop I ever saw somebody cry in was my first workshop that I was in at Columbia and there was a mixed woman character uh, written by a white author and there was a line at the end of it um, that talked about she was mixed but she was beautiful <laughs> and there was other woman next to me Amy Barnett used to be the, until recently she was the editor of Ebony. And she just tore into this woman for 50 minutes. Like, by the end, I felt sorry for the woman. And the woman, she, you know, she exposed her own racist shit. I have my own. And, uh, like, there's no one up on this panel and there's no one in this room that doesn't have the baggage of being in a society that we need to deal with. So with that idea of, like, group love of the room and also... Maybe this kind of like Catholic idea of everyone in the room is a sinner. I try and negotiate that. And that's one of the tricky things with our discussions period on this is that we, and, and you, know, you mentioned Twitter in the beginning. Twitter is a great example of it. We have this idea that like there is a, a politically pure persona and everybody else is evil. And so everybody's petrified of showing, you know, the things that might deviate from that persona. But if you, if we get in that mode, it kills the conversation, like Alex, you were saying. just kills it. You want to get that there on the table. One of the things about loving my students, I do love, I want them to do well so bad. Kirkus doesn't love my students. Library Journal doesn't give a shit about my students. So I'd rather them mess up with me 
and I can call them on their stuff in a in kind of controlled way, then have them go out in the world and, you know, um, have people who will take glee in kind of destroying their work. So, yeah, it's, it's, I'd love to hear some strategies, too, for how to, how to do it because it it's very prickly. And, we, you know, even that student who's saying the stupid stuff, we're, we're trying to help them, too. Just to, just to quickly address the question, just to, to, since I haven't talked on it, but what is the purpose of the workshop? I agree with everything that you guys have said. I'll add the one thing that I think um, at the undergraduate level, not everybody that is in that classroom is going to go on to continue writing. So part of my pedagogical approach is that the workshop is a space where we learn how to talk to other people um, and how to listen to other people. And so I just kind of, like, I have very small goals. I'm like, please just like learn empathy here. Um, and for my graduate <laughs> students, really, I think part of the goal for me is for them to be able to transcend workshop and never need one again, eventually. Like to get to that point where they're like, I can't ever take another workshop. I already know what needs to happen. So they so sort of internalize that. So as far as how does, I, I think it, it, how does uh, issues of misogyny, homophobia, the questions are here, which is really nice. So we can, if, we, if I forget what it was in listening to everybody's awesome comments, I'm like, oh yeah, this is the question. In the first scenario with undergraduate students we've all actually used the phrase at some point like I had to shut it down or I had to stop this sort of thing and I've come to question I've done it myself I've had to do that and been like the whoa 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 kind of thing (laughs) but I've also learned how I make a distinction in my in my syllabus in a in a a diversity kind of statement it's it's called like diversity of opinions and experiences and its role in class discussion and I make a distinction on the first day between unintentional acts of bigotry and purposeful acts of bigotry and I talk about my course as a place where unintentional acts of bigotry need to arise because that's how you learn that it is an act of bigotry and then we we call out more we talk about calling things out rather than like sort of shutting things down but I have I mean you do have to do that because sometimes people there's an agenda that's going on and you know factor into all these things that you're dealing with like individual personalities of people and I sort of don't know how we do what we do when you start thinking about it that way so I'll stop there before it gets depressing I'm going to segue a little bit off what you just said, Janine. And I also want to segue off what Alex mentioned earlier. So the the lines between misogynistic, sexist, homophobic, racist writing, and then work that addresses each. So I kind of want the panel to figure out how, how you define that and also how you would address it with your students who, you know, if that comes up, clearly don't understand that line and also when you let it ride and when you shut it down because yeah i i am interested in how you figure out those lines and which line to fall on like so as far as that question of like when do you let it ride and you've also heard everyone in here at some point reference their own experience as a student in workshop and so clearly those experiences are informing who we are as teachers when it comes to this topic um one of the workshops that i was in as a graduate student is a very small program uh, my family's Cuban, and I was writing a story about an angry family that happened to be Cuban. And maybe 20 minutes into the workshop, um, an older white male who was in my cohort, he just t- sort of took my story and like did this across the table. And he was like, I don't know what you're doing. Like, If I were Latino, I would be doing all that magical realism shit. That stuff is selling so well. Like, You're not giving yourself what... You guys are laughing, but it, it was this insane moment for me because... I was 23, and I thought, oh, he's right. He's totally right. And why am I writing about these families when I really could be, I have all this, this like, I'm, I'm, I have a kind of privilege, right? Maybe I can do that. Although that wasn't my literary heritage at all. Like, maybe, like, kind of a different kind of ancestry, but I didn't grow up reading that stuff, and those weren't the kinds of writers that I wanted to be. But I went home that night, and I started to write my, like, crazy magical realist story. I was like, here we go. And, oh, he, he was also like, he was like, you could be writing about, like, uh, Santeria, right? Santeria. He was like, you should be writing about, like, witches and shit. And I just was like, and he's like, yeah, you could place that so easy. And so there was this sense of, like, the market entering into the workshop, right? Like, what do, what do publishers want to see? So I went home that night and started writing this story and um, got to a point in the story where I had no idea what was happening because I, I don't know what happens in a... I don't even know what to call it. Like when you like a séance, right? Like when you go to a brujera and she's trying to like do a trabajo on you or undo it. And so I, like any writer would, went to Google and was like, "What happens next in this scene?" <laughs> and then I realized that he could have done the same thing. He could write that story. I didn't need 
to write that story, that that wasn't what I wanted to be writing. And so I'm, I'm bringing this back to this question. This wasn't addressed by the workshop instructor at all. He sort of sat back and waited to see what happened. And I go back and forth. This is, why I'm on this, this is another reason why I'm on this panel. I went home and I wrote a story, and then I got stuck because I didn't know what happened. And I wrote the line, well, what happens next uh, depends on the reader's knowledge of Santeria. And that ended up being the first sentence of the second movement of the story, which completely undoes everything the first part does. And it sort of takes on the performative aspects of identity there and what was expected. Like the idea that a white reader was going to go into the story and believe everything I said because I was Cuban, but maybe they shouldn't because I had no idea what the fuck I was talking about. (laughs) And so I I undid the story, and then it became a first-person story. And it was like one of the weirdest things I had ever written and also unlike anything I had ever produced. And it set the trajectory for the rest of my career. And that would not have happened had the professor stepped in and said, where do you get off telling her what she can write? Like, what I would have done, I think, as a teacher, and been like, must protect the student. And so I, I've, I've, come to the, I've come to the conclusion for that, that the professor was very aware of what I could do. And it was a small enough program. He worked closely with me. So he knew that I could handle, that I would make something out of that moment rather than let it shut me down. I don't know, I, I, other than us knowing our students really, like, their potential to know, like, if they're going to continue writing and how much you have to support that, and, it, like, knowing them personally. This is, did I even come near the question? <laughs> I don't, okay. <laughs> That's making me think of um, two workshop experiences I had that were somewhat related. One was, my story was getting workshopped, and one of my members of my cohort he sort of did that, and he was like, why should I care about the lives of these bitchy queens? Why should I care if they live or die? And it was, it was a, the whole story was about, you know, someone who has just discovered he has HIV, and uh, he's suicidal, and the narrator is the friend that's coming over to, like, try to sort him out, and he ends up getting a picture of the inside of a relationship that he thought was a very happy relationship which in fact was an incredibly abusive one. And, you know, and my, likewise, my workshop instructor said nothing. And I really boiled around that question. But I also, I think I understood that I actually, in some ways, the, what the story had to do was, the story had to make him care against his fucking will. That's what it had to do. Excuse the cursing. But, but that, was, that was me at that moment. I was just like, that's what I have to do, and I guess I didn't do it. And in some ways, that also was a powerful trajectory-setting moment for me as a writer because I understood that uh, in trying to just write about gay men at that time based on my own experiences, that there was some way that I needed to, to make the story... Accessible is the wrong word, but like... To have the story have its own kind of magnetism, he wouldn't be able to turn away from it. I'm going to say two contradictory things, which is also my favorite pedagogical tactic. Um, (laughs) One is that I I think it's really important in thinking about when to intervene, when to shut things down, how to try to prevent those moments, to remember that it's not about you and the student, it's about your classroom. I think the thing that I come back to as a moment or or semester that I most regret was my very first full-time teaching job I was like 23. I, I had this kid. I was, you know, most of my career I've been almost consistently the only black woman in my classroom, often the only woman of color, often the only person of color in my classroom. And so sometimes I get things that are happening in class that are very much about me and the student's sort of reaction to me. And I think my reaction at that time was to get in one of those sort of don't blink first contests. Um, so I had a student who would turn nothing in but violent rape scenes and stories about assassinating Obama. Like, seriously, everything the student turned in all semester. And I think for me at the time, I just, I didn't want to react in such a way that I let him get under my skin. I didn't want to, like, let this take up all of my time. I think he was waiting for me to be, like, his angry black woman professor. And I was just, like, not going to do it. But what happened was that he took up so much space in that room that other people had to deal with that was my fuck up. Like I should have been the one to, to take that to take that hit and, and deal with all of the administrative stuff that I would have to deal with to get him out of the classroom and have it be my headache because it was my classroom. On the other hand, I also feel like part of 
part of our job is to empower students to kind of call each other out on things and, and make that space their own. I don't know if you remember this, but so when Matt was my workshop professor when I was supposed to have Victor LaValle, <laughs> and I was terrified of Matt because he wasn't Victor mostly. I thought that workshop was a thing you could study for. And so, like, <laughs> you came in and I had no idea who you were. And like in the, in the first couple of weeks of class, you gave us this story that was like super mediocre and kind of racist, but I was like, but Matt Johnson gave us this story, so like there must be something that I'm missing in it. It must be like a good story. And then we got to class, and you were like, I gave you guys the story because it's super mediocre and kind of racist. And I don't want you to think that like just because somebody published something or somebody gave you something that you can't say that. Because we were all kind of like trying to gingerly talk around that for like 10 minutes, right? And I think that like finding a way to, to make that kind of space um, in your classroom where students are like, no, I don't have to... You know, I, I want my students to be able to push back against me. I'm not always right. I don't always make that. I want them to be able to push back against each other, even when they're doing stuff that is sort of aesthetically lovely. I want them to be able to push back against the published work and talk about, and not, not in a way that sort of shuts it down or says that it can't exist, but that sort of thinks about those issues and, and makes them feel like we're not here to sort of filter down aesthetic judgments. We're here to make our own. And so I think that space between sort of owning the classroom and realizing that you are ultimately the person responsible for it and creating a sense of kind of communal responsibility is the tricky part. That's awesome. I'm, I'm wondering in this room how many people are now going to use that to open up conversation, pick a really super mediocre <laughs> story with major sociological issues in it. So I do want to move on to strategies and creating space for students you know, because Danielle, you brought up the fact that as a teacher, you've got the whole classroom. You're not dealing with the one student or that one piece of work. So I also want to, um, we're off-roading a little bit from our questions, but how do you empower students to participate and engage in these sticky conversations? And in general, what are some of your strategies? Because I, I do, I do want to talk about practical stuff, right? I mean, we all acknowledge it's a problem. <laughs> so what, one quick thing that I do um, is, you know, we all make syllabi, and usually under the, in that syllabi you have a section called participation and what you're supposed to do. And you say things like, be on time and turn in your work and some of those basic things. I also have these two things. And what this does is it just shows that on the first day this class is maybe a little different from other classes. And this is in every syllabus, whether it's a literature course, creative writing course, anything I'm teaching, this is going to be in there. So under the participation section, I have these two things along with don't be late. Recognize that an individual member of a particular ethnic, racial, or religious group does not represent that entire group. Refrain from asking both directly and indirectly any individual, including yourself, to speak on behalf of an entire culture. It's impossible to do. And that's there, and I usually, when I get to that point, say, this was asked of me a lot as a student. Whenever I would take a class, and if I was the only like, Latina in the room, they would say, well, what do, the, what do the Cubans think? And I'd be like, well, as your representative Cuban, this is, <laughs> this is how we feel. <laughs> so I just, I say that, and I just bring my own experience as a student into that. And then the second point, I, right after that on the syllabus, it says, at the same time, recognize that not every identity category is as obvious as you may think. Don't make assumptions based on who slash what you think or don't think you see. And then the next one is like, don't turn in your work late. So this is, this is under participation. It's a huge junk, chunk of their grade. And it, because I am also listing thing, things about like being to class on time, that gives it prominence in my course policies um, because it is a course policy. So I have other little things that I put in my syllabus, but I'll stop there. So I've started starting undergraduate classes with a discussion on why I don't believe in trigger warnings because it's been a thing that's on some of their minds. But as a way of having a conversation about what we might be able to do instead, I think... I don't believe in promising anybody a safe space because I don't, I, don't, I don't think safe spaces exist for anybody really and certainly not for anybody who's existing in any kind of marginalized body. I also think that triggers are often not topical and so to promise anybody that we could avoid all of the things that will bring them to the bad places is, would be a lie on my part. Um, it would be promising something that I couldn't deliver and asking them to promise something that I couldn't deliver. But the way that I talk about it is, one, giving things to material rather than using it, that... I think especially in undergrad workshops, they often want to go for what they think is the edgiest thing in the world. They're, I tell them not to be sort of writer vampires, right? If like, you're sucking all of your energy from the fact that this is a loaded issue, what are you doing? You're making something less. And so I, I want them to think about handling material responsibly and handling each, other, handling each other responsibly, which doesn't mean including themselves, right? It means like if you need to leave the room, 
you can excuse yourself, right? If you, um, I, I would like you to be able to come back in the room and, and talk to us about where you're coming from, but you, you can decide how you can do that and whether you can do that. Um, but I think just putting on the table that all of these things will be in play in the semester, that you're there to help the writer get outside of their own head is important. I mean, the, the language I use is that sort of fiction is a practice of intelligent empathy. That, that part of what we're learning to as writers is to see around ourselves. And so that conversation is a really important part of the workshop process, partly because, it's, like Janine, I, I think that since a lot of them are not going to be writers, that's part of what they're learning, but also because as a writer, you have to be able to get outside of your own head. You have to be able to anticipate how other people react to the world. And so making that part of the conversation on the first day has been, I think, useful in a way that I, that I want to open things up rather than kind of close them down. Like listening to, listening to you guys, one of the things I was thinking about was that um, there, in my head there's two types of issues with this. One is people who unintentionally are relying on ideas that you know, are just wrong and that, that it's coming out in the work. And the other type is people who are intentionally disruptive. There's, there's some people who are just intentionally disruptive and they use this as a vehicle to be disruptive. And some of those people are people who are like, I'm doing this to be edgy. I'm just old, but I'm so sick of I'm doing this to be edgy at this point. But the people who are unintentionally sort of electrifying their work with hate speech light, those guys, the one really cool thing is that most of this, most of it, of those issues can be covered under the section of bad writing, right? So usually the biggest, if you have a, if you have an, like this kind of offensive archetype in your piece, you have a crappy sort of fake character puppet in your piece. And so that, to me, as a writing teacher, gets to be an easier way to deal with the fact that, you know, you have this character that is offensive. It, usually the biggest issue is it's not well written. So I can pull you apart with just that, and I can get a lot of the work done. Another thing I, that's actually really helpful is to just say, well, okay, this thing over here, you know, you have this black guy running down the street with a television – that's racist, and it actually dates back to the 19th century. It used to be chickens during slavery because they starved the slaves, and so they would sometimes steal food. And then they used that later with the television to kind of dismiss the fact that they were also experiencing overwhelming disenfranchisement and, uh, and turn that into a joke. So you really don't want to do that. And then I'll spend 20 minutes talking about the character, right? So you just knock it out and then go into the character work. So under the guise of character and, and prose and dialogue, I'm able to do most of that. And with the ones who are disruptive, and this is, I, and I, you know, I teach from a masculine position, and I've been in the room for a long time, so I used to just, I just shut them down in front of the room. I basically just smacked them down, and I will say these issues, I'll, I'll put out what the issues are, and I say we're going to have to discuss those later. Because the other students in the room need to know that, this person is being controlled because otherwise they're not going to feel comfortable going forward. I've definitely used that method also. I think I I learned the bad writing response early on. A, a, a classmate had said of a character that he was obviously gay and that was the only description but everybody else <laughs> everybody else in the room was described except for the guy who was obviously gay. And I said, what does that, you know, what does that mean to you? What are you actually trying to say about him? That's an entire, that's like putting a billboard up in the middle of your scene, you know, and it doesn't leave you any room or the reader any room to figure out what you mean by that. And it was a pretty useful tool. I think that I, I like to begin classes with a discussion about how they're there for each other as well as for what I'm going to say. I try to make the point that uh, if they keep writing, they're probably going to see each other down the road for years, maybe decades. And then that this is an opportunity for them to get to know each other and possibly to find in the classroom other readers that they might have for the rest of their careers. I do that as a way of, of making them real to each other past the classroom. I... I have also taken to instituting a policy where I ask them not to share anything on social media about other students' work so that they're not Facebook shaming or Twitter shaming somebody whose work that they don't like. Uh, I do that as a part of trying to say, like, if you don't like something that someone's written, take it to them. 
directly here in the classroom. That's what it's for. It's been, it's been okay. I think I, in some ways, I won't know a lot until, you know, 10 years, 20 years out, how it worked out for them. That's the thing that's a little haunting. Uh, it's why I make a point of, for example, always checking in with my former students who are queer over the years. Every year, if I haven't seen them publish something, I just shoot them a little email, what's going on, what's happening, and likewise with, with students of color. I don't want to be the oppressive dad, like writer dad, who's like, why aren't you writing when that's not the choice they made? So I, I do say things like, this is your annual check-in. you know, And I do that because it's so easy in the face of everything to just stop. And that's the thing I don't want to see them do. I also want to ask about pushback. You know, um, there's always the writer who says, it's not me, it's the character, or other ways to push back on the feedback or the vibe of the workshop. This question was addressed to me by someone who actually deals with it a lot, so I wanted to ask the panel. <clears throat> how they deal with any pushback. If, can can if I do that? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah uh, I just, um, I don't care, like, who, <laughs> no, but I, like, and I don't care, I don't care in, the, like, almost every way. Like, I don't care, it's not an excuse in the piece, and it's also, it's not relevant at all. That's not relevant. We're trying to communicate p- people, and we're trying to do it with the squiggly little inclines on a page. So the question of not, of what you intended, in general, I hate that in class, where it's like, I meant, well, what I meant was this. Well, that's nice that it's not, that's not how people are reacting to it. So as an artistic question, I don't care. And as a personal judgment question, I don't care. Because I really don't, this is like my pet peeve now. And this, like, really, I'm off Twitter this summer. I can't take it anymore. Because, like, I feel this, this, constant, this constant debate. That, uh, it's not me, it's my character, is this saying, I'm an innocent I'm innocent, and I'm not a bad person. I'm just showing bad people. But I don't care if you're a bad person. I care if you're a bad writer. You know, so I don't. I really don't care. I want you to be a good writer. There's writers who I love who are racist as hell. Most of them are dead, so it's easier to excuse them. But still, like that's not going to get my issue in the room. Is I'm not a, a racial sensitivity trainer or general xenophobic uh, sensitivity trainer. What I'm there to do is make sure they're a good writer. And um, from that point of view, we all know up here, we know there's some horrible people that are good writers. You know what I mean? So, like, if they can become good writers, certainly my students who haven't become twisted by time yet, they can become good writers as well. And so I just, like, my point with them is always, it's like, this is not a judgment of you. That's not the important part. The important part is the work. And if the work it be, the work will become limited by your limitations. And one of the things is that I think, I believe that your progress as an artist is going to be contingent on your ability to negotiate yourself, right? And that on a lot of emotional levels. And one of those, um, of those emotional levels ends up being part of how you see the rest of humanity. So I've certainly seen people who go down because they are unable to really see themselves as they really are. And so... In that sense, it does matter. But in the general sense, you're having a conversation with the reader. I do. I've been turned off in the past where I've seen stuff on the page, and it's never challenged in any way. And so the assumption it's coming from the writer themselves, and then it becomes even more problematic. But the bigger issue to me is always the work. Really, I'm more concerned with the work doing well, and not just that piece, but the work this person can do over their lifetime, than I am with like with whether or not they're guilty. If the question is, are you sexist, racist, homophobic, uh, all these things, if you, you live in America, right? Like, those, all those things are in there. Like, that's, we all have to negotiate. Like, I'm racist against myself, you know? I've literally walked down the street and seen, like, who is that big, scary, you know, Puerto Rican dude? You know, like, oh, it's me. Okay. He won't <laughs> mug me. Yeah, so, like, I'm not... You know, that part doesn't concern me as much as just, like, it's trying to get the work to, to exist in a, in a way that's better than the person. I think th- there's a kind of pushback that I don't care about, which is, which is about the writer. I mean, I think 
It's important to me. I, I think so much that we write about racism as a thing that happens to people and not a thing that's produced. So I'm actually interested in people writing racist characters or sexist characters. I'm interested in like not always having it from the position of victimhood because I think otherwise we erase that sort of pervasiveness, right? We we write as though all racists or sexists are like people who exist somehow apart from us and spend all day doing malevolent villain things, twirling their mustaches, and when in fact they are all around us. So I'm, I'm interested in work that, that does something complex with that, but it has to be there for a reason, like anything has to be in a story for a reason. The pushback that I have more trouble with is I find that, especially at the undergraduate level, I mean, so many young women have like internalized so much sexism that the pushback you get for calling out sexism will be from women. And, 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 and I find negotiating that to be tricky sometimes because I want people to be empowered to read things. I want people to have conversations, but I also feel like there are certain things, there are certain avenues I just don't want the class to go down, right? Like I do not let a workshop of a story about a rape turn into like the 15 things the characters could have, could have done to not be raped because that just seems not a worthwhile use of our time. But the fact that that happens so often <laughs> concerns me like in a way that's beyond, beyond the writing. Um, and, I, and I don't always know what to do with it. It's, it's the pushback that comes from not so much the writer. I don't really care. The writer can either want to be better or not. And at the end of the day, if they want to publish their story and have that be like, their position in the world, that's, that's their name on the line. But I, I sometimes feel like there's a pushback that comes from the class to reacting to certain things that feels like it requires more conversation than we have always time for in the, in the space of the actual workshop without getting away from the work itself. I, I actually don't build in a space for them to push back. <laughs> <laughs> so I use the Iowa method, which is where the writer doesn't talk while they're being discussed. And then if they try to talk, I say, yep, and I just... You know, I ask them to take notes. I ask them to sit with what people are saying about their work. I meet with them afterwards. I, that's also built in. There's a conference with me alone. And, and then if they have issues, we can talk about it. Um, I allow questions if they feel like something wasn't addressed. And if they try to turn the question into a defense of themselves, I say, it's not a question. <laughs> And I just keep it there at the level of the structure of the thing. And I do that because I do think that one of the most important things that a workshop can do is get you to sit with what you did. And at a basic level in life, you can't just go around talking to everybody who reads your work and saying, but this is what I meant. You know? <laughs> like, so it's just not real to, to sort of allow them, I, I feel. It doesn't teach them anything about... How to, how to do that, how to listen to what people are saying to them. I also, I realized I, I did have uh, one institution I was working at. They, it was very strange. They created an office whose responsibility was to suggest that professors adopt trigger warnings. And so I, I, I remember a semester where I was engaged in this kind of strange dance with that office and certain student volunteers from that office, one of whom was in my class, where they were trying very hard to get me to adopt trigger warnings for a creative writing undergraduate workshop. And I had to explain to them, I, if I put a trigger warning on a student's story, which is what they wanted me to do, that puts a terrible label on the student going into the class. And it doesn't help me help them, whether it's the student being workshopped or the students who are workshopping them, to address the things that they were trying to write about. And it's, it's something, you know, and also with the workshop, you don't know what the student is going to turn in until they turn it in. And if you create a situation where uh, there's the possibility of a trigger warning being put on a story that they've submitted, um, which allows... You know, if, if you're doing it in the way that allows students to opt out of reading that story, then you've entered a, a kind of disintegration of the thing that you were trying to do. That whole thing falls apart, as far as I can tell. If someone has an idea for how that can work, I'd love to hear it. But I don't, I don't want to have them be put in a situation where they begin self-censoring in a way that is trying to create these sorts of utopian stories where no one is racist, sexist, or homophobic. I would say I also at one point would love to see us talk about how we encourage our students of color 
to talk about their own uh, their own their own cultures, their own family stuff, home stuff. Because one thing that I have seen a lot of in terms of self-censorship is a lot of students trying to write stories where no one has any ethnicity at all. I, I did want to segue from there, yeah. And I did want to ask the panel, and this is sort of a closing question before we go into general Q&A, is how do you encourage your female gay students of color to open up and to really talk about their cultures especially in a workshop that might not feel safe or in a situation in which you know that they're going to always, they're going to feel vulnerable. Well, one, I I have other sort of policies that I go through on the first day, which is I talk about uh, what I call edutainment. And I tell my students that it is no one's responsibility in that classroom to educate anyone else about their culture or their, or their ethnicity. I should also say that we talk right away on the first day that, like, that white is a race, and so I want to see everyone's like, most personal story, and that I, wanna, I want to hear my students talking about their, their experience as white people in the world, too. We also talk about these sort of like unintentional acts of bigotry, and I ask my students on the first day when we read through this on the syllabus what that means and what those are, and I give an example one and I sort of, a little bit like what Matt, what you do, of like, isn't it silly when everyone in the story, like no race is named until a person of color shows up in the story and then all of a sudden that's your black character and no one else's race has been named. Like that's the kind of thing, like isn't that crazy when that happens? And all my students sort of like make a note, like <laughs> make sure uh, if I have a race in the story, everyone's race is getting named, right? Like but my, you're identifying your white characters as white characters and that whiteness is not a default race for anybody in a story. So I make it sound innocuous and like, oh, isn't that silly? Nobody in this class would ever do that. And then it doesn't happen over the course of the semester because they've sort of learned something. It's like a teachable moment. So that's one way that, um, that I sort of do that. And um, I tell my students, too, that if a foreign language shows up in the story, um, it's their responsibility as readers to know what those words mean and to not to come to the workshop knowing what those words are and that there's no excuse it's so easy these days just like look it up on the internet and that it's not the writer's responsibility to necessarily provide a context for that word, that they're making an aesthetic choice to exclude you in that moment and that you should interrogate what that moment means in your critique for you as a reader and where you're coming from. So I just say those things outright so that they, because I remember being a student again and being like, I, I, I wanted more of the food. I wanted more of the music and the sounds of this like vibrant, you know, sassy place. <laughs> And so I, I bring in these examples. I say that. And so, I, you know, and I say it's not the writer's responsibility in any way to edutain you. You're not entering this as, like, now I will know what it's like to be from X culture after I read this, X, Y, Z. Like, you were reading about, what, like, a, like, one character's life and a moment in their life where something changes for them. Um, so those are two things that I, that I sort of try out or that I say outright. And I think that encourages students because it's like, oh, if she's talking about having another language in their story, in my story, then maybe that's something I'll try out. Maybe I'll see, like, what, why would that come up? Was there something I could write about that would do that? Um, so sort of, like, putting it out first. And along that with Alex, um, I came of age as a writer when Toni Morrison was, like, so towering within African-American lit that, like, everything was in some ways sort of a response to her from, you know, other students. And so I, I saw both it. On one hand going to, to try and come up with some race-neutral characters so that you don't have to deal with all of it at all. And the other hand is, is um, falling into the track that both of you guys mentioned about there's an ethnic track for your writing, and it might pay well, too. So, like, go do this, this set type of um, story. And I saw students, and, and, and some of the students have careers where they did that. Like, I've read so many very sober slavery stories that were there because of Beloved. And they wanted to do Beloved. And they were getting published because there was a huge audience that finished Beloved and said, what am I going to buy next? And so, you know, you had those those kind of things. I feel like everybody in the room is trying to figure out what it is about themselves that the the rest of the universe wants to hear. And it becomes even more complicated when they are, and I'm speaking in numbers, an an ethnic or, or any other type of minority voice in the room that question becomes even more intense around it. I think, I think ultimately the bigger question is, is um, can they get to their truth that way, right? If they, if they can get to the truth better by making everybody, every character, you know, mice, then it works great. 
Um, but if it's avoidance, it's going to sink the whole thing because they're not giving all themselves. And like, ultimately, we have to lay ourselves out on the table like sashimi and cut ourselves up in service to the, to the world. And so if you're not doing that, it's not going to work. And that's the same reason cynical attempts to tap into whatever um, ethnic fad of the moment is um, within, you know, that you can connect to also tend not to work. They tend to not work, not to work after maybe a book or two, but eventually, like, they run out because it's, it's also insincere. What I'm hoping to do with them is trying to get them closer because I've seen, I've seen the opposite where, like, people come in and they're doing work that reproduces the work that other writers of their ethnicity are being very successful with, and they don't have their own voice. And all this, like, gets further away from what they actually have to offer. I've been thinking a lot about this myself. I think what I used to call those books, Matt, were cookbook fiction. Um, <laughs> you know they're Asian because of what they're eating. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I, I remember really resenting them um, when I was coming up. And, you know, the, I remember I, I had some teachers say things like, if you're gay, don't write for a ghetto. Other teachers who said, you know, you're going to be the first uh, Korean-American gay writer which sadly turned out to be true. Um, and until recently, I was the only one. I'm waiting for there to be enough of us that we have fights. And hopefully that will happen before I retire. I think what I'm very aware of with, when, with my students when they, when they write ethnicity out of their stories is that a lot of times they're afraid of being attacked for including it. Whether that is they're afraid of how it will be received or... They're just kind of hanging out, trying to act like they're just like everybody else in that room, even though there are differences. And yet also, they are also like everyone in that room, in a sense. There's this sort of difficult position that they find themselves in that I, is one that I remember being in, because I did used to also do that. As someone who was biracial, I remember feeling like my background was too complicated to explain to people. And, you know, often because when I would try to explain it, they would look at me like I was a thing, like I was some kind of freak accident or a mutant. You're a good mix was, not, was for example, a lot of <laughs> the things that people would say, and I would think, what if I wasn't? What if I was a bad one? What if it all just, like, went horribly wrong? And it took me until, you know, graduate school to really start to think about how I wanted to do that. Especially because whenever I would tell stories about my family, people would say, oh, you should write that. That's great. And I would think, that is exactly what I'm not going to write. But that's not actually thinking about what I have to offer the world. It's not thinking about what kind of work I want to do. And so with my students, that's the kind of conversation I try to engage them in. And if I catch them you know, ripping off Amy Tan or, or Toni Morrison, I, we have a conversation about, are you writing the story you want to write, or are you writing what you think a story is? You know, I try to get them to focus on what are the experiences that they've had that they've never seen anyone write about? And how can they, how can they begin describing those as honestly as possible? And I try to take the conversation there, which in some ways is the good writing conversation, and I find that to be a pretty successful conversation. So it's time to take questions from the audience if... Does anybody have a question? Yes. Okay, hang on. Let me figure it out. You in the tan jacket. And I'm going to repeat your question so everybody can hear. So the question is about who has the right to talk about the other, in, in short. That was a topic of our panel last year, so we could have a whole hour-long discussion on that. So, And how do you deal with that as an instructor in I mean, I guess I, I wouldn't make room for that conversation in a workshop space because it's, I mean, you have the right to do anything. If you're doing it badly, we're going to talk about why you're doing it badly. I think that that question of, of where the writer's material comes from is for me, like spending the whole workshop talking about where you did your grocery, spending the whole meal talking about where you did your grocery shopping as opposed to like what's on the plate. I don't care where your material comes from, but I do care if you are writing a flat character who is a cliche stereotype I don't care how many people you know who fall into that character's demographic. If it's zero, maybe you have more work to do before you get that story right. Maybe you need to step away from it for a little while as a writer. That's your question. That, that's your task. But the workshop's task, I think, is not to decide what you can or can't do. It's to decide whether you did what you were trying to. 
And so I think when that, if, anytime the conversation becomes personal, like that's, that's an intervention moment for me, that's a redirect moment. If it's about what the writer's life might have been like, that's not, to me, a thing that we should be discussing as a class ever. What the writer's story is trying to do and why the writer didn't get there is a useful conversation, and the writer might realize in the course of that conversation that why they didn't get there is because they can't write vernacular because they've never heard that kind of voice before, right? Or they can't write a gay character because they, they haven't spent enough time paying attention to the people that they know when they're writing something that's sort of reductive and comes from their media consumption and not from their actual human experience. Um, I think that part of, part of that is for the writer to write it on their own, but it, it shouldn't really be in a classroom space, a thing that's given a lot of table time. I think that since you had mentioned, oh, what about when some things are not obvious? So I'll answer with an anecdote. I had a student in a workshop. We were reading um, entire story collections, and the student um, could pass for white, but she's in fact Turkish. She was new to the program. No one knew she was Turkish. She had this story collection mostly about sort of a different group of people, like very um, wealthy Manhattan party, beautiful, gorgeous people. It was a really cool, interesting voice. And then there was this one outlier of a story told from the point of view of a Turkish cab driver with um, heavily uh, accented like dialect. It's told in, in a dialect. And it was um, just aesthetically very different from the rest of the collection. And the students all sort of tore into her for appropriating that voice. And then I also uh, gave, give a moment where a student can redirect the conversation, where they have to ask a question, they can't defend a thing. And her comment was, well, I'm Turkish. So this sort of ties into what Danielle was saying because the point was that the story failed because there was a story in there like even from the point of view of a cat and the cat had like this really sophisticated, amazing voice but the cab driver was... Like in this case, it's actually in some ways about class too. Like it, this, this character didn't have access to proper language in her mind. But the story failed because of, of where it was situated contextually with the other pieces. Um, so we were able... Like the conversation there was an aesthetic conversation and... I, I really I wrote down what Danielle said. It's about where you do your, not about where you do your grocery shopping, but about what's on the plate. And so we were saying, you know, why isn't his why why is his voice not elevated when even like this cat gets to have like the cat's not going meow 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 throughout the whole collection. Like it like talks like a normal person. So for me, I always phrase things as questions. I was like, why does the cat get a voice but not this driver? And she was like, okay, got it, right? I think I'm I'm very wary of the who has a right thing because I think it's. I think it's an essentially conservative value to even ask the question. It speaks to self-censorship in a way that I'm really uncomfortable with. I think of that book, it's, I think it's just called Story by the screenwriter, is it Robert McConnell, I think? Robert McKee. In it, he says something really basic where he says, if you haven't done enough research, you rely on cliches. And that's how I address it with my students where when I find them speaking from the position of a stereotype in an unconscious way. I just say, you don't, you don't know this as well as you need to if you're going to do that. We'll take uh, one more question, which is like, it's like Sophie's choice, because uh, we've run out of time. So I think she had her hand up first. So, so the question is about a paradigm shift from the concept of the workshop as a safe space to an uncomfortable, challenging space. And the question um, addressed to the panel is about what tactics and strategies they would use to enable that. Can I? That's a really interesting point, and, and thank you. I've been in workshops or visited workshops where they were specifically all about being a safe space. And everybody comes with cookies every week, and the majority of the energy is put into... Uh, reinforcement. This is great. This is fantastic. It's great. And I think for some people, they need that, and that's what they're there for. So um, I respect that. I just don't think it's helpful uh, to actually become a better writer. So in general, I just it's growth, and it's, uh, and it's painful. And hopefully the idea long-term is that that pain is going to turn into something better. I mean, if anybody's been in a workshop, you've been in a workshop where you got reamed and you walk around for a while, like, upset. But that's how you grow, right? So within, within the context of this, uh, of this discussion, that's kind of – I try and tell them immediately. I don't, I don't tell them, like, I want this to be about love. But I tell them, I'm here to help you do these things. 
That's what we're here to do. I want to improve your work. I want to improve your voice. I want to give you an idea about what a story is. But I also kind of scare them the first day, which is really effective. If you have a crowded classroom, you can scare them and drop three or four people, and then you got a better workshop. That and having class at 8.30 in the morning. Between the two of them, you can kind of shrink your size. So I do that with them, and it sets up a couple things. It, it sets up... One that I'm going to be in, I'm gonna, I am going to play daddy. That's, that's my style. Not everybody, you know, does the parental thing. But I'll do that. It's trapeze art, but there's a net. But you know what? Falling with the net still hurts. Do you know what I mean? So I, don't, I want them to know that this is, you're not going to be destroyed in this room. But it's still going to be scary. And it needs to be scary at some level so that, so that we all can push ourselves forward. Also important for ourselves and for our students to like become aware of other resources that are available on campus and know how to send students there. Like I am not a trained counselor. I have a reasonable understanding of of a lots of sociological issues, but not all of them, right? And there are resources on campus that exist for that. And sometimes they're more uh, they do better or worse work. But I think separating that conversation, like making it clear that workshop is about your writing and is not a therapeutic space, which doesn't mean you know my door is open. I want them to come to me something's going on with them, I want them to tell me, but I'm not always the person to deal with it. And I think making that clear in the syllabus on the first day, being like, here are other people you can call who have degrees in this, because I can't help you work. Like, your writing may be therapeutic for you, I don't know, but sometimes I might tell you the opposite of what an actual trained person would do in terms of, like, I'd be like, go into it. Go to the place that hurts the most, and maybe that's not where you are yet. And you need to know that, and someone whose job it is to, like, keep you alive needs to know that. Thank you. We're all up here for a little bit. Thank you for tuning in to the AWP podcast series. For other podcasts, please visit our website at www.awpwriter.org.